This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code Frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras and lenses, but also anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing, accessories, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. I was asked recently to speak on the subject of Kodak's Shirley calibration cards. A Shirley card was a reference card used by lab technicians producing prints for primarily negative film. The first of these cards used an image of a Kodak employee named Shirley, whose white skin tone was used as an aid to deliver color-accurate prints for Kodak customers. Though different women posed for these cards over the decades, the name Shirley stuck. So film and its processing and the resulting prints were optimized for white skin tones. The results for people with brown or black skin, while they weren't always accurate or flattering. This disparity was something I became aware of even as a young child, well before I understood the fundamental principles of photography. That outcome was both a technical issue and a result of bias that had a lasting and painful consequence for generations of young people who saw fault in their own skin tone rather than the technology and the business of photography. Now that conversation made me realize that there was a lot I didn't understand about skin and what factors are involved in photographing it accurately and well. So I reached out to makeup artist Nikki Posley to discuss the issue from our distinct and unique perspectives. We learned a lot from each other, and I hope you do as well. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I'm very pleased to have the chance to talk with you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, because it's, as I explained in the intro to this, it's been something that's been sort of on my mind in terms of photography and skin color and makeup and representation, all these things, not only because of the work that you do, but you know, probably also because of your own personal experience as a black man and, and working with black artists and other people, people of color. Because I think for me, this is going to be as much of an education as it is probably for a good number of my listeners. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's always fun. Absolutely. But, but I want to get started because this is one of the things that came up in the conversation when I was being interviewed is like, when were you sort of first aware that the way people of color are appear in, in photographs differently? And I had vivid memories in elementary school mm-hmm. of when we would make pictures, you know, the, the school pictures each year, which you were obligated to do. 
Right. You, you know, you go into this in, in I went to St. Collins Elementary School in, in South L.A. And we would all have to wear our uniforms, which were like a blue shirt and uh, blue sweater and corduroy pants, which I hated, which that's yeah. an expression for another point, another day. <laughs> But I remember, you know, the photographer putting up us on the stool and just like moving through us one, you know, one at a time. And it was just sort of a big deal because it was a break from from class. But inevitably would come the day when the pictures would come in and all the kids were excited to take a look at their photographs. And I distinctly remember that the kids who had darker skin didn't look as good as the people who had lighter skin. And the, well, the kids, the, the comments that a lot of the kids were like, oh, you look so dark. Right. And it was largely, this was a school that was probably 50-50 in terms of Hispanics and, and Blacks at the time. But I, I, I remember that really distinctly. And it was only later that I kind of understood what was happening in terms of how people of color were lit and how film and processing was biased for, for, for white skin tone. To be that young and to sort of, to see that, Especially the, the, the bias is always the, that was already inherent from the kids' perspective in terms of, oh, you look too dark, so that looks bad. Right. And it's sad, and uh, it's something that stuck with me for a very long, long time. And the discussion I, I wanted to have is, is, is not just about that sort of personal history, but just the, the reality that you know, the film industry and this, and this would be speaking primarily of stills, still work, is that there is, because of the nature of photography, because of the nature of makeup and all of those things, that for a long time, people of color have not been, had the opportunity to be, to be shown at their best. Absolutely. Especially in the hands of photographers and makeup people or even hairstylists who are not familiar with how to deal with a different type of skin and a different type of hair. And I, I would love to get to get started with your personal experience in, in terms of when you first became aware that there was a difference, either from your your own personal experience. Let's start there. Well, first, I have to say that I share your experience because I also remember very clear recollections of the the elementary school photos and remembering that the brown skinned kids would automatically appear darker in the pictures where the lighter skinned children appeared more balanced in the photos. Now, I didn't have the language for this at the time, but I just remember something being off because if these were kids that I was in school with every day, I know what their complexions look like. And when I would see the photos, it was always sort of off or it was a little bit hazy or, or darker. So I remember that, too. I just didn't have the language for it uh, being so young. But I also remember, you know, collecting magazines as a kid. And, you know, when you see the same photograph printed again and again and again in different publications, you can see that the tonality or the contrast of the photo is something that can be controlled and manipulated. And it's something that I would see look very different from publication to publication. And it's started this whole sort of questioning and journey sort of in my mind of who is making this person look like this or make them look like that. And why is it happening? Um, so that's when I really began to pay attention to it as a small kid. So that I have in common with you. 
you know, like one of the other complaints I often heard is, even for myself, when I was in a photograph with other people who were white, I would yeah. appear dark. They would look fine. I was just these eyes. <laughs> <Exaggerated>. <laughs> but, no, I know. Not. And I know that that's a common complaint for, for, for people. That, that sort of personal experience, it's a frustrating one, you know, to not see yourself represented not only in the pictures that you're seeing in media, but also misrepresented in the pictures that you are in. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the thoughts that immediately comes to mind and why I think this is important is that it sort of impresses, especially young kids, with the idea that there's something wrong with them rather right. than it's an issue with the technology. And then, you know, why why this is important to consider, not only as a human being, but also as a, as a creator, whether you're a photographer, a filmmaker, a makeup artist, or whatever you're doing involving the reproduction of people's appearance in, in any kind of media, you really need to understand that there are limits and things to consider in terms of the technology, whatever it is that you're using, and that it does have a consequence. I mean, I, I know from just personal experience that it has a consequence. So I know that it certainly has, a, it's, it's still there, that it is an important thing to consider for, for kids who are seeing themselves or not seeing themselves. Absolutely. I agree. No, I was just going to say, you know, later um, in my journey is when I realized that a lot of devices that are used throughout media to record people are really calibrated for lighter or, or Caucasian skin. So you really have to know how to handle the technology if that's the end that you're working on, or if you're working on my end and you're preparing someone to be recorded or photographed, it's really important to see what's happening in that screen and to understand the differences between how you would, for instance, make up a lighter or Caucasian face as opposed to a brown or you know, chocolate skin personality or, or model. So there are layers to this. When you were starting, you would do sketches and you would do drawings, and then eventually you got into doing, becoming a makeup makeup artist. And yes. you're largely self-taught. So in those earlier years, when you got to practice, were you primarily practicing around you know friends and family members? Is that how you got started? And were they largely people of color? They were people um, in my immediate environment. I did have some family to practice on, but I also would practice on girls that I worked with. At the time, I was working in the printing industry, but I knew that I wanted to do makeup. And we would work a full shift at work, and you know, I would beg them to let me <laughs> spend some time practicing. And you know, they gave me that time, and they allowed me to to make mistakes and do what I need to do. And I think that's because they saw my passion and my excitement about doing it. And therefore, they were excited. So I was fortunate to have a rainbow of people to work on. But I was also cognizant of how important it was to work on a full range from lightest to deepest complexions in that process. So what were there some of the important things that you had to come to understand in terms of that, that you know, not only the difference in the color of the skin, but just the way skin can appear different on between person to person in terms of whether they're oily, their dry skin, whether, you know, the various colorations of their skin, how it's different maybe on their neck and then they're in the body as opposed to their face. Tell me about the things that you really had to, that you feel like, especially because, you, you know, when you're educating people who are learning from you, what were some of the sort of key things that were important for you to understand at the very beginning? 
So I'm going to try to unpack that in three different categories. One of the things that I did when I was teaching myself about makeup, I had a professional camera. I wasn't professionally trained, so I often used it on the automatic setting. My purpose for using the camera was to document each phase of what it was I was doing. The first thing I had to understand is that the camera's eye sees things differently than our naked eye or natural eye. I realized that the camera could pick up details that weren't necessarily apparent to me. So I wanted to sort of build a relationship between the way I saw complexion or details and the way the camera I was using understood it. So I documented everything from start to finish in phases. One of the next things I had to pay attention to was the fact that lighter or Caucasian skin reflects the light. So that means that when color goes on a lighter or Caucasian complexion, it's like painting on a blank canvas. Typically, the colors and the tones that you use are going to read more true because there's less of an influencing color on the canvas already. Darker or brown skin absorbs light. So to get the full intensity of a color that you're using, be it a foundation, an eyeshadow, whatever the case may be, you really need a different level of pigmentation in the product, or you may need to layer it so that it reads at the intensity level that you want it to show on that complexion. Those are the first two relationships I had to understand. Um, another was the fact that complexions aren't made of one solid tone. I find that most complexions have three to five actual tones that create the overall coloration that we see. And we as people of color tend to have more tones within the complexion. So you have to be more adept at custom blending and understanding the difference between where the lighter area should be and where the darker areas should be to perfect a complexion. So those are the first three things that I sort of picked up on. And then, you know, having a background as a fine artist, I spent years painting and drawing faces and understanding the relationship between light and shadow, where they overlap, where they run off the edges and just understanding gradation, the concept that light and dark can exist right there in the same space, but it's how they meet that creates the form. Perhaps the long route, sorry. <laughs> no, no, hey, this is podcasting. I'm very well, I'm good with that. Tell me about undertones. What is that? So when you're speaking about undertones, uh, primarily, you know, you're speaking about yellow, red, pink, olive. The undertone is sort of separate than the actual surface complexion. Um, an undertone can be an influence or a wash of color that exists underneath the first color you see in a face. For instance, I'm a mixture of yellow and red undertones, primarily yellow, but I have strong areas of red in different parts of my face. So as a makeup artist, if I'm matching a complexion, in order to custom blend a tone, which I do all the time, I have to find a balance between what's perceived as the immediate complexion and what the undertone is. The undertone tells me what category of color of foundation or powder to pull in to address that particular face or that beauty. For me, it's, it's 
been an intuitive process because I am self-taught, but a lot of what I have to say in makeup comes from my influence as a fine artist and being used to dealing with color theory, understanding colors and opposition, like red and green are opposite colors on the color wheel and what that all means. But when I look back, I'm thankful that that I what that I wasn't technically trained by someone else uh, because it allowed me to have a real voice. I basically jumped in the water, made the made the investment of time and product, got people to sit for me, documented as much as I could as I went, and so that created the voice that I have because this isn't always about just making someone pretty. It's working as an as an interpreter a makeup artist is an interpreter it's not always or honestly rarely a hundred percent my vision because this canvas is alive and has opinions it's different than me painting on a canvas or drawing on a piece of paper because i don't have to make anyone else happy when i'm doing that except myself but when i'm working on a client you know be it soccer mom to celebrity whatever the case may be they have a vision and I come in and I use what I know to execute that vision. My goal is always to make them look like the best version of themselves. But I sort of have to operate within the parameters of what they are comfortable with or what they can handle. The whole concept of the undertones is something that I completely understood without knowing what the term was. Because in my experience as a photographer, especially working with images in Photoshop, was that when I was trying to get an accurate skin tone, I was often playing with the individual colors, mm -hmm. specifically the oranges, the yellows, and the reds. And I knew that by independently adjusting those colors, I could get a much different effect on the color of the skin. But yes. it was easily evident that just adjusting a singular color, say orange, for example, and reducing the saturation or, or adjusting the hue might accurately re reflect some of their skin tone, but not all of it. Right. Because as you mentioned, some people have a warmer or a cooler skin tone. And so that, that, that's something that I had to be really aware of whenever I was processing images. And one of the things that I, I, I had when I was having this discussion was the understanding that if you're not used to looking and seeing brown and black skin, that when you are processing an image in Photoshop, you're going to be referencing other things that are familiar to you. So you could probably look at, find some sort of neutral element in the shot. There's a neutral color, get a neutral white balance off of that and calculate your, you know, all your adjustments based on that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the skin color is going to be rendered. That makes and, sense. And then if you're dealing with, if you're familiar with white skin and you adjust, you know, all your, your Photoshop changes for that white skin because you're familiar and you know what it looks like. You are not that doesn't necessarily mean that all the other skin types in that shot are going to be well represented, especially if they weren't lit for their skin tone. Because yeah. usually the default is they have one type of light and it's supposed to be good for everyone because it has a quote unquote correct exposure. But as you just said, black and brown skin is absorbing more light. So photographically, you need more light on it. And if you're not aware of that, and you get that file, and you and on top of that, you're not familiar with what you have to do in terms of adjusting selectively for those skin tones, 
not everyone is going to look their best. Absolutely. Yeah. And in still work, I think it's, it's kind of a, 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 a challenge if everyone isn't on the same page. You know, person, you know, person is doing the lighting, the person is doing the shooting in terms of someone doing the makeup. So communication is a big part of that. And so when you're, when you're working with, with people, especially a photographer, they may have a sort of a vision for what they have, but what do you need from them when they're saying, hey, I got this concept, I want this subject to look a particular way? How do they need to communicate with you in order to ensure that you're getting the information that you need to be able to do your job the best that you can, rather than someone saying, I trust you, just do your thing, right? Which is you know, no help at all. Right, right. So there's layers to this as well. You know, one of the first things that I like to see, I like to see the model in position underneath the light that's going to be used because that gives me a reference as far as how much, how much shading or highlighting I might need to do so that the model doesn't flatten out in this given light. Then, of course, I need to see the model on the monitor. And it helps, of course, to see her or him, you know, periodically in the course of uh, creating a look. For instance, a, a lighter complexion, as I mentioned before, is going to reflect light. So if the light is too strong, they'll completely blow out and flatten out. And, you know, all you'll pretty much see is eyes and nostrils. So depending on the light that's going to be used, I sometimes have to create a soft shading on the face, particularly the perimeter, to frame and give definition and nuance back to the features so that the light doesn't pretty much eat them up and, and destroy the, uh, the highs and lows in their bone structure. Then on the flip side of that, for a deeper skin, sometimes I'll have to go into the center of the face and create light to pull the features forward. You're basically creating the level of tension between light and dark that makes the most sense on the given complexion, given the light that's being used. So this is something that you really only come to understand from experience. And one thing that was very important to me as I was teaching myself in this journey is that a makeup artist's first responsibility, if you're going to call yourself a professional makeup artist, is that you understand the full global range of complexion. You know, unfortunately, in this industry, there are a lot of people working pretty well who can only do one thing. But in my opinion, our first responsibility is understanding how to address complexion from the lightest to the darkest. That's what being a professional is. There, there are certain certain people who have just wonderful skin, yes. and there are other people who may not have the most ideal complexion. And I see the range of both in, in a lot of printed media. It's not that all these models have perfect looking skin, be it male or, or female. That it's not that's just not the case. But one of the things that I think about, at least my preference, is I don't want the real person to disappear behind all the makeup. And, yes, but you also want to create a, as flattering a, a shot as you can if you're doing glamour or if you're doing you know, a personal portrait. And you don't necessarily you know, want to show all those blemishes, but you don't want to a, 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 you know, completely wash them away to the point where this person looks like a mannequin. So where do you sort of strike the, the balance between 
between those two when you're working with someone? It really depends on what the end goal is. It, again, depends on how strong the light is, what kind of light it's going to be. Through this journey, you know, sometimes I've been in a situation where I realized I needed more coverage because the light was basically ripping through the makeup and exposing things that I didn't want to be seen. So it's sort of a back and forth between you and what you see on the monitor, also in concert with the photographer. There's different levels of, of coverage that you can use, um, different levels of perfection. Now, that's going to be influenced by the quality of the model's skin. You know, some girls you can get away with, you know, a sheer wash of color or a tinted moisturizer, a little bit of soft sculpting. But on the flip side of that, if we're talking about, quote, natural looking makeup, which is something that has to be explored and defined within the conversation with the photographer and what you see on the monitor, sometimes it takes a little bit more makeup to look like less on camera, if that makes sense. Mm, that's interesting. If you, if you think about this term that, you know, happened years ago, if you think about the J-Lo glow, this, this look of this perfectly beautiful sun-kissed skin, this idea that she always looks like she's just come back from the best vacation in a very neutral palette. Well, there's easily three to four foundation colors going on to create that version of natural. Natural is a conversation, but it's only relative to where the conversation exists. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense, it's great. I like to use her as an example because this is something we as makeup artists hear all the time. You know, I, I, I just want to look natural and glowy, you know, like J-Lo type thing. But <laughs> as someone who does this for a living, I know, of course, that, you know, she's a beautiful woman by any standard. But there is work that goes into the version of natural that she presents because that version has to hold up under the lights. So that can often mean shading. I'll say it again, it's easily three or four different foundation colors, easily three different powders to create that, to create and support that version of natural. So whether it be a client or working with a photographer, I have to understand what do you mean by natural? Does natural mean gap ad natural, where it just looks like she just has on chops, uh, chapstick and a little bit of glow on the cheeks and all the freckles are showing or is it a more perfected version of natural simply done in neutral tones so you have to sort of get on the same page there so that you can get on the bus together see right there that's an education for me my in in terms of that the word natural really is, doesn't speak to a specific look it doesn't mean anything. It's yeah. it's one of the most loaded terms in our industry, you know, that we hear. You know, I want her to look natural. You know, I, I can create a very natural looking eyelash for a model and, you know, put that on and she still looks natural. She still looks like herself. What version of natural? What kind of cake are we baking? Yeah, it, it, it means as much as natural <laughs> fruit fruit flavoring. Right. What's, right. what's natural about flavoring? <laughs> flavor. 
Right. So you get to work with a lot of a lot of people who've had experience with a variety of different um, makeup artists. What are some of the sort of the common complaints that you've had people of color who worked for you that they've that they've said they not appreciated or liked in in their prior experience before they had a chance to work with you? I mean, what are some of the common common you know issues that you hear of? Foundation matching, I would say, is the number one complaint that I will hear clients express from previous experience. He or she wasn't able to match my tone. I was too red. I looked casket ready. These are all just sort of things I'm quoting. Um, <laughs> I mean, and let me tell you something, you know, clients are more and more, they're more savvy than ever. They're in the magazines. They're on the blogs. It's not like it was 20 years ago where what we as technicians did was much more mysterious. They come to the table oftentimes a lot more educated. They may not be as skilled at doing what it is we do, but they're more involved in the conversation. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that because I've made it my business to understand the global range of complexion. But I would definitely say foundation matching has been probably the number one complaint that you hear from clients from previous experiences. Other than that, you know, it might be a stylistic thing that they didn't like or wasn't communicated properly. But those things, those things can be easily addressed. You know, I use the phrase, what kind of cake are we baking? Literally with clients. How do you want to feel in this look? What feature would you like to emphasize most? What feature do you love the most on your face? Let's let's find where the story is and just accentuate the things that are going to make you feel like the best amplified version of yourself. So you also have to know how to have that conversation because it's a sensitive topic, particularly when you're with a client for the first time. I understand when I show up, I'm showing up as a servant and I'm showing up as a translator. It's not all about me being able to show them every trick I have in the book, because sometimes a face can disappear if I do that. But I'd like to sort of come to the table and listen a little bit first and find out what are your concerns? You know, if your neck is dramatically darker than your face, which color do you like the most? Do you want to look like the tanner version of you or do you want me to match the face? It's, it's all a conversation. So you have to just humbly come to the table. When you say foundation, is that the same as base? Or are they two separate things? It's, it's the same thing. It's just another word for the same thing. Okay, so for... For the ignorant uh, people out there, including myself, right? So foundation, I, I, it suggests just that that this is the the baseline. This is where everything is built upon. Yeah. Right? And so once you're able to sort of nail that, that's where you can sort of build on in terms of what you're doing in terms of um, the framing of the face, the you know, outlining, the, you know, emphasizing the cheeks. Uh, bringing out the eyes and all those other things. So what are the, the, is that an accurate representation or? Yes, that's the literal canvas that you're creating, that you're going to use color, style, texture, and shape to tell a story on. The, you know, the face is your canvas, your foundation or your base, as some people call it, is that first 
of after skin prep, of course, but that's that first layer that perfects the canvas that allows you to tell a story and you want to create on a face that can accommodate a story. So you have to lay the proper foundation. If I go in and I'm skipping steps and I'm all excited about hanging the curtains, but I don't have a strong foundation for the house, that house is going to fall apart. It doesn't matter what I can do with eyeshadow if I don't nail the skin. I know that YouTube videos have seemingly replaced photo magazines as a resource of photographic news and instruction. When you find the right source, it's good for that. But when it comes to inspiration, I always defer to my collection of photo books. It's those books, including the ones I've received from the Charcoal Book Club, that spark my desire to be creative and to challenge myself. In those books, I discover photographers with a voice, talents who express their unique vision. They're not following a trend or trying to convince me to buy their presets. These books showcase the best in contemporary photography and show pictures that make you feel, think, and experience the joy of photography. If you want to become a better photographer, you have to surround yourself with great work, and the Charcoal Book Club provides a wonderful way to do just that. Each month, you'll receive a first edition monograph and a photographic print for your collection. Just take a look at their website and examine the great titles they offer, and you'll get a sense of what you have to look forward to. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the code DECANDRAFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I have used several different camera systems in my career, and almost every time I purchased a 7200 2.8 lens or the equivalent, it was a focal length that I knew I would need on occasion. The thing was that when I looked at my catalog of images, it was often the least used lens that I owned. I spent more time storing it and carrying it than I did making pictures with it. There's a lot of equipment that I feel that way about now. I may need it but not enough to spend one or two grand on it. If I really need it, I can rent it from LensRentals.com. They have virtually anything a photographer could need in terms of cameras, lenses, lighting, and more. They provide convenient and affordable service with excellent customer support when you need it. It's a perfect way to try it before you buy it. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. And thanks to all of you who continue to support the Candid Frame financially. Of the thousands of people that listen to the show, only a few hundred choose to support us financially. If you want to change that, please contribute to the Candid Frame today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you so much for your support. One of the things that I like that you mentioned was being aware of what's happening with the lighting and having seen that on the monitor. Um, yes. Because if you're shooting everyone under the same sort of kind of lighting, that's one thing. 
but a lot of the work that I see is very creative. So it isn't just putting a soft box or a beauty dish in front of someone and just shooting them. There's a gelling that happens with the lights. There's real high contrast looks where you're having heavy shadow and highlights. And for me as a, a photographer, one of the things that often came up when I would discuss it with the other photographers, especially when I was coming up, was seeing that people of color weren't being lit properly. That it wasn't yeah. just a matter of not having enough light on the subject, but having an understanding that, let's say, a really dark skin, if you if it's underexposed slightly, they might get possess a bluish color cast to that area mm -hmm. of shadow, which you may or may not want. You know, or some people being rendered more yellow or orange or whatever it is. Um, as a result, not only of the skin tone and the makeup, but also the way that you're lighting and the you know and the types of lights that that you're using. When you're in dialogue with, 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 with a photographer, can you give us an example where you were working all of these things out in collaboration with, with someone in which you know, that dialogue was essential for, for pulling it off? Because I'm not technically trained as a photographer, I have, to use, I have to use more basic terms in the conversation, like how much contrast are you wanting for these photos? You know, how, how brightly is he or she going to be lit? These are very basic concepts I have to understand so I know how much sculpting and shading to do uh, that's necessary or how much is, you know, not necessary. So even though I don't have the technical terminology from, you know, from a photographer standpoint, I find that I'm able to have that conversation not only you know, in basic terms, but also with images, you know, sometimes there's a mood board or based on what I've seen with the model, I'll bring in photo, other photos of her that are lit differently. And I can say, you know, are you looking at something like this? Or are you thinking more like that? We're able to sort of get it done and you don't have to have all the technical terms to, to have that conversation. Obviously, you know, speaking of myself, I'm always in a learning mode with it and I intend to learn as much as I can, but you have to work with what you have. And, you know, that's what, that's what I do. When you look at other work that you see out there, that's um, say something I spread in a magazine, what's, what's some, what are some of the things that drive you nuts? Skin. I would say when I look at a photograph and there'll be a beautiful girl with a beautiful, rich complexion, and she's painted with one flat tone that makes no observance of the highs and lows in her complexion. It just looks dead and flat. That drives me crazy because <laughs> particularly with uh, women of color, um, black and brown people, there's so much beautiful, delicious nuance to grab onto. But from a makeup artist's perspective, you have to have an eye to perceive that and then the ability to custom blend to, to mimic it. When I first got into the industry, I worked uh, behind the makeup counter. I did that for many years, and that was, my, that was my second school of beauty. I had been practicing makeup on anyone who would sit in a chair for a few years before you know, I began working behind the counter. That experience was great because I didn't get to choose who came in. One client will be 16 with flawless skin. The next might be 60 with hyperpigmentation. But I had a finite amount of time to address that client's beauty in a way that made sense to her and made her feel like an amplified version of herself. 
from time to time, I would get teased about the amount of energy and care I would put into skin. But I knew that that would always be the most important element to master as a makeup artist, because it's the thing the client has to live with, regardless to the style of paint you're going to put on them. So when you're you know, trying to win over the trust of a client, you have to show them the best version of their skin first, because they sort of relax into your process. But that's how you go in and sort of win the day. And it sets you up for everything else that you do. Sometimes you'll be working with a client who says, no, I don't wear red lips. That's too much. I don't want to look whatever. But you'll get down with the skin and they see that looking amazing. And it's like, okay, I'll try it. So you, you have to sort of give yourself to the process. But that is what drives me crazy because there's so much richness and beauty within the global range of complexion and to just paint a girl with one flat tone is just a missed mark. You just mentioned, you know, your, your early experience working with people that are older and as you get older, the, elast the elasticity of your skin changes and a whole bunch of different things change as, as a result. What are some of the differences in terms of your approach, whether technically or, or in terms of how you're observing someone's one's face and skin? when you're dealing with someone who's, you know, had more years into the belt. So there's a couple of things that I uh, think about. I'm aware that the products I'm using to create coverage or create complexion, the way those products are used doesn't change, but the way you apply them to a more mature face can be different. For instance, the under eye area or the eye area in general, it's a bit more fragile. So you have to be more careful with the amount with the amount of coverage that you're using you have to find products that deliver a high pigment payoff but that don't present a lot of actual texture on the skin so it's kind of like elevating the complexion and choosing or curating products that are going to get me there that don't add additional texture to the skin. It's a fine line to walk and you really have to sort of play with product and have an understanding of how different textures of foundation work. Because for instance, a, you know, a younger girl, you may be able to, you know, slam her face with foundation and in the end have something that still looks beautifully natural because the skin is plump and the elasticity is, is high, but the balance can be made. It just is something that comes with experience. With the, for the, historically, the materials were made for a particular complexion, a white complexion, and you know, with and a lot of uh, people have complained that, that because there were such a limited range in terms of who these products were made for, they could never find something that was ideal for them. But it seems like over the last several years that there's been an explosion of of products, not only from major manufacturers but also independent manufacturers, just to to cater to a more democratic audience in terms of people who use the material. Do you find that 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 for your work that you're still relying on sort of the more common brands? Or are you looking for or, or do you actually work with things that are catered to on the more narrow range of skin types for the work that you do? I have to be open to working with all of it. You know, for instance I can't sort of have all high-end products in my kit. Sometimes I have to use a combination of high-end and drugstore because what I'm thinking about 
is what is it going to take for me to deliver to deliver the end result now there's definitely a lot more to work with now than there was when i started i've been doing this professionally for about 24 years and in terms of brands i could probably count on two hands all the brands i was aware of at the time if that gives you any sort of framework for how much more is available now but the catch to that is for a working artist you have to be able to make a distinction between brands or products that are just hype and what's actually going to help you do what i like to call the heavy lifting so i am a makeup junkie just like a lot of my <laughs> counterparts <laughs> but what i will say is that i educate myself about what the products can actually do for me and I find myself doing a lot of custom blend. I find it I find it necessary. Once your eye is attuned to the difference between straight out of the bottle and custom blended, it's kind of hard to go back. Why why would you go back? So that's something I pride myself on in the work that I do is being able to pick up the subtle nuances in color and tone and how to blend those tones, what's necessary to layer them. It, it's like cooking. It's it's a recipe. And when you're going from one kind of client to another, let's say completely different skin textures or age range, tonal range, you have to quickly create a recipe that's going to get you where you need to go. And I think because I was able to teach myself on such a varied range of complexion and get my hands dirty so early on it took away a lot of the fear you know sometimes you have to use products unconventionally sometimes a concealer becomes the foundation for me sometimes an eyeshadow becomes the best product to contour the face as long as that product is tested safe for that area on the face if you're going to be an artist about it you kind of have to open yourself to the full range of what your products can do that is completely analogous to photography because you can learn a, a specific lighting technique. You know, mm -hmm. How to do a, a Rembrandt sort of light, you know, and, or do a clamshell light. And you can learn the technique, but it isn't yours. And so you start playing around with it and you start experimenting with it and try to make it your own. Because it's always, if you just do exactly what you've were instructed to do, you may technically get something that is good, but it isn't necessarily something that's worthy of attention. So, yeah. uh, you know, the whole idea is like, okay, now you know the fundamentals. You know, now what do you want to do with it? What do you want to say with it? In your case, it's what you want to say about the face. And in my case, it's what I want to say with this photograph. And that's really you know, at the heart of being able to express yourself and be an artist, because I know you, you emphasize the fact that you are an artist. You're not just the person who does makeup, you're an artist, you're a creative when you're doing the work that you do. What do you love about it so much? Every time you have an opportunity to do it, what is the thing that sort of just excites you about each opportunity you have to do what you love to do? Wow. When I first started becoming interested in the beauty world, specifically doing makeup, it was a way to create escapism. I could paint my way into any reality that I wanted. I could inject my world with a sense of glamour that it didn't have. And I love the idea 
of being a part of someone's process, you know, helping people to lean into their purpose by helping them put their literal game face on. And there's something that's endlessly fascinating to me about all the possibilities in the face, all the different ways you can change the mood of a face and make a client feel powerful, edgy, sexy, coquettish, innocent. These are all things that, you know, we can do with our brushes and shadows and paint. So I'm getting to create a completely intimate experience for someone. And there's something beautiful about the fact that when they're done with that particular adventure, they can just wash it off. Can you give me an example of, of, of a job that you did that you felt was incredibly gratifying for whatever reason? Wow. Um, I've been doing this a long time. My answer to that is, is this. In the time that I've been doing makeup, I've had a lot of wonderful experiences. But sometimes when people ask that question, oftentimes they think that the most gratifying experiences are going to be working with an A-list celebrity or something that garnered a lot of attention. And for me, I've had satisfaction and, and, and been honored in those spaces, absolutely. But there's something about the appreciation level of the client that is gratifying to me. Uh, one of the most gratifying experiences I've had, this was many years ago, I had an opportunity to come and do makeup for women who were in a halfway house. Uh, some of them had faced and were dealing with substance abuse issues. Some of them were dealing with uh, domestic violence and they had to be, they had to remove themselves from the situation and they were starting over. And through a particular organization, they were being connected with potential employers. And so they were preparing to re-enter the world. I was one of those people that was called in to help boost their self-esteem by giving them a professional makeup application, many of which who had never had that. And I choke up even as I talk about this because all the women had different stories. But to be able to do that for people who just simply wanted to live and exist in peace and build a new life. And for me to even have a drop in the bucket to contribute to that was incredibly gratifying. Um, so when I think about experiences that were, that I felt really proud of, that's one of the first ones that comes to mind is you know, having the opportunity to teach and speak internationally. I've, I've gone to Brazil to teach several times. And the last time I went, I had uh, two models to do in the presentation, which this is interesting because this connects to something you had asked me before. One model was a porcelain skinned white girl. The other was sort of a caramel. She's kind of like my complexion, what I would call caramel, just sort of a medium golden brown. And there was a team of people that were assisting me in terms of setting up because this was done in a huge, it was done in a theater, which was an interesting environment for that. We were working with the lights that were up above in the back of the house, plus a uh, ring light that they had set up on stage. And one thing that was interesting is that once I finished my first demonstration, which was the, the white model, 
as we were getting set up for the second model, they started doing odd things, you know, with, with the light. And I had to have sort of a conversation with them that we're, we're going to have to test this out. I need to see, I need to see some different settings here because what they did is they immediately just, they dimmed the light to the point where I could barely see what was going on. And in the moment I didn't understand why they felt the light had to be so much more dim for her. The other thing is that the ring light was sort of set up on the side, which was more of a prop than something that actually helped me to see. I had to mention to them, I need the ring light directly in front of the girl so that I get full light. So she's not side lit. She was completely side lit. Sometimes, you know, people are used to using lights as props. And in my mind, no, I actually need to see because I've, you know, I had hundreds of people there from different places in the world. So it's, it's a lot of pressure and they were great to work with. Don't uh, misunderstand, but it was just interesting what their perception of light was for the darker skinned girl. And they, it was like automatic. And I'm like, well, no, we need to test it just the way we did on the other girl. But that was a huge, um, gratifying experience, you know, pulling that off. Uh, thanks for sharing that story with me. Well, my last question is I ask people to recommend other others uh, for our for our community of listeners to discover and explore it on their own. So is there a makeup artist that you've uh, long admired or, or recently discovered that you would recommend listeners to check out? There is. There's a makeup artist um, I've gotten to know over the last few years who has an incredible spirit, but also does beautiful work. Um, her name is Michaela Warriabi, and I can give you the proper spelling of it later. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is wonderful. Um, she's also, she's an educator as well. She's someone who's strong at the full gamut of, of complexion, you know, addressing the global range and just, I think is a really interesting and potent voice in the industry. Well, thank you for the recommendations and thank for your generosity and your time. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I learned a lot as well. Thanks to Nikki for joining us. Find out more about Nikki and his work by visiting NikkiPosley.com. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Elizabeth Labert, Shadja Elizabeth Jarecki, Paul Bellinger Jr., and A. Thorne for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. 
and this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.